Welcome back to the Rebel Core Content Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. I'm Anand Swami Nathan, and this week I'm here with one of our chief residents at St. Joe's and soon-to-be med-ed fellow at UC San Francisco, Dr. Christine Ju. Christine, welcome to RebelCast. Hey, Swami. Thank you. Christine, a couple of weeks ago, you gave a really great talk on neonatal resuscitation after a precipitous delivery that you had in the emergency department. I was hoping that we could discuss some of that content and you could share some pearls with the audience. Let's start with a little bit of a short discussion of the case you had itself. This woman comes in, she had been actually in the night before, had some lower abdominal pain, um, was discharged home, had a urinary tract infection, and the next morning actually came back, had set an onset abdominal pain that morning, um, and by the time she got in, um, basically had bulging membranes, so it was kind of crazy. So clearly this baby was coming. You didn't really have time. This wasn't a let's get her in an ambulance and ship him over to another hospital that had pediatrics and a peds ICU. You just kind of had to go with the delivery. And then after the delivery itself, once the baby is out, there's a lot to do in resuscitation, especially because this was not a term baby. This was a this was a precipitous delivery of a preterm neonate. I wanted to definitely transfer her, but it was definitely too late for that. She was about six months So about 24 weeks gestation. So I'll tell you, Christine, even if I was working in my hospital that has a pediatric ICU and a pediatric team, even a neonatal team, I would still be pretty anxious about delivering a 24-week-old. And because you had this precipitous delivery, because you had to think about this resuscitation and take care of the patient as well as the baby, you really spent a lot of time thinking about how that resuscitation needs to work so that you would be more comfortable the next time it happens. And what you discussed in our conference was a 10-step approach to taking care of the baby. Now, there's going to be another team taking care of mom. We're going to step aside from that for a second and talk about taking care of the baby. I think the first step that you should do is definitely take a few deep breaths and kind of calm yourself down. I think feeling anxious is an understatement for a case like this. I mean, if you think about it, a lot can go wrong, and I definitely thought about that. (laughs) You have two patients to take care of, so first thing I think that you should do is take your white coat off, um, take a deep breath, put your super suit on, and get to work. And that anxiety is going to play against you, Christine. If you're anxious, if your heart is racing, it's going to be much harder to take care of the patient in front of you. All right, step two that you discussed is calling your friends. Now, we're not talking about your Instagram and your Facebook friends. Which friends are you talking about that you want to get involved here? I think that this is all hands on deck. Um, I think you need body. So in the ER itself, you need the nurses, techs, your attending physicians, other residents, whoever you can think of, um, but also your friends as in OB and, and the neonatal team. Um, if you're at a shop that doesn't have peds or OB, you should definitely get them on the phone. You need them to come down immediately if they're in-house. Call L&D, call the OR, overhead page them if you have to. If you're not at a place where you have these services, maybe they can come over and give you a hand, um, but at least give them a heads up because you're definitely going to have to transfer them. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that I didn't really know much about, but there are places that are close enough in terms of a tertiary care to the more remote or uh, less tertiary care type hospital where they'll actually send a team to that tertiary care hospital to help with the delivery because they think that's actually faster. So you have to know what's set up in your system to get done. And sometimes, Christine, you can just get the team on the phone to help you walk through that delivery if it's something that you haven't done in a while. So I think that can be really helpful too. Whatever resources you can get to the bedside, whatever resources you can get to help you, get them. This is not a time to be apologizing for calling your consultants in the middle of the night. Get help as soon as you need it. That brings us to step three, which is finding the baby warmer, getting it plugged in and getting it going. And I'll tell you, this seems really straightforward. It's not always. (laughs) No, not at all. 
Um, I think that it's really important to wherever you are to make sure that you have one, but also find it and practice turning it on. Um, it's definitely easier said than done. I wish that I had done this beforehand. And I feel like we've had all these like sim labs and we've had all these things about, you know, with other people telling us to do this and I never actually done it. But when you have a case like this, knowing how to actually use a baby warmer would have been very helpful. So I definitely suggest that wherever you are, if you're starting somewhere new, if you're a senior resident like me, wherever you're going, find that warmer, plug it in, actually turn it on and practice how to use it and like how to adjust the temperature. This is really the difference between tactics and logistics. It's easy enough to say, I need the warmer, get the warmer on versus actually physically doing it. And you need to, like you said, practice doing the procedure. Many times the charge nurse, there's, there's a charge nurse or some senior level nurse who knows everything. They know where everything lives. They know how everything works. And you need that person. You absolutely need that person. Whether it is the ED charge nurse or the charge nurse somewhere else in the hospital, get them because they usually know how everything works, where to find it. They know the little corners and the nooks where we've hidden equipment that we don't really use very often, but they can get it for you. So make sure you know that person. They're your best friend, especially when you're working absolutely. overnight single coverage in a remote hospital. And that actually ties in really closely with step number four, which is to anticipate the equipment that you might need for both patients, not just the mother, but also for the baby. And in this one, Christine, you mentioned plastic wrap, which is not something I typically yeah. bring to a resuscitation. But like you said, you know, this step four naturally goes along with step three. Once you have that plug, uh, that warmer plugged in and turned on and warming up, definitely find all the equipment that you should possibly think of needing. Um, not just mom's, you know, OB kit with sterile gloves, gowns, clamps, stuff like that. But don't forget about the baby and what that baby will need. So temperature probe, towels, pull socks, beanie, um, bag valve mask, preferably in the right size if you have them. Let's talk about that plastic wrap specifically, because again, that's not in my resuscitation kit. That's not something that usually lives in the emergency department. What's the deal with the plastic wrap? Why did you want that? Why do we need it? Yeah, for some reason that stuck out in my mind. If you're struggling with the warmer and you can't get it on or worst case scenario, you know, you can't get it to work, have some plastic wrap around because it'll actually help keep the baby warm in case you can't get that warmer to work. Um, if you've done marathons or seen marathon runners, you have that aluminum foil looking blanket that they always carry around. And it's kind of the same concept. Um, that plastic wrap in such a small thing is going to keep them warm and uh, keep that heat um, in a, a tight knit area. Um, and in some cases, you don't want to actually use towels because babies at extreme ages of prematurity have very, very thin and delicate skin. And sometimes the typical towels that we have in the ER are that are used to dry, used to dry off the baby and warm them can actually rip their skin. This was a winter delivery, but even in the summer, you'll see when these patients get transferred to the NICU, they'll be wrapped up in this uh, cling wrap or saran wrap. And the reason is because it helps to conserve heat. And they're so easy for them to lose heat because of that large surface area. So this is a very common practice, but doesn't always come to our mind. And I have seen that skin kind of almost slough off when you wipe with towels. It, it's pretty awful and obviously exposes the kid to a lot of different risks. So that plastic wrap is really the way to go. Let's move from there to step number five, which is to set everyone's roles. Make sure you have two teams if possible, one for the mother, one for the baby, and make sure that it's clear what everyone's jobs are. Yeah, I wish that we had done this looking back at the case. We did very well with what we were given and what we had, but 
I think assigning clear rules was really important and something that should have been done at the at the get-go just to clarify you know whose job was what you know who is delivering who's actually taking care of mom and who's actually taking care of the baby who's running to go get supplies who's going to get meds who's making the phone calls in this case the attendings were the ones making the phone calls um if we, God forbid, need to resuscitate either the mom or the baby, you know, who's going to keep time? Do we have respiratory therapy available? Should we bring the recess cart nearby? And who's actually performing procedures? Assigning clear roles is really important in any resuscitation, but this is really two different resuscitations that are going on. Now, after you deliver the baby, mom might be totally stable and not much to do, but you have to expect that you might need to do two separate resuscitations, in which case you really do need two teams if you can make it happen. Step number six is to deliver the baby, stimulate, dry, and warm. Yeah, this in itself can be a whole separate talk. Uh, I mean, this talk by no means is extensive and complete, but definitely anticipate issues with the delivery itself. You know, these babies still can be breached. You still can have nuchal cords, stuff like that. Um, but you know what? Usually premature babies are so small that the actual delivery itself is not that big of an issue but like every other delivery remember to stimulate dry and warm the baby as soon as it comes out all right step number seven it seems like we're in the home stretch christine but we're really not there's still a lot more to do we need to estimate the gestational age and transfer to a warmer yeah why this is important we'll get to in a second but um there's three quick ways that you can use to estimate the gestational age or guesstimate gestational age. Um, and the three things are the eyes, their feet, and their skin. So the eyes and term babies, uh, those that are greater than 37 weeks, will spontaneously open. Um, if the neonate's eyes are fused shut, then that's definitely a sign of extreme prematurity. So they should be less than 28 weeks if that's the case. Um, if you look at their hair and skin, a lanugo is something that is a fine white soft hair um, doesn't usually appear until at the very least 25 weeks but should be abundant by the 20 28th week of gestation um, if you see that the baby skin is super thin kind of sticky and transparent um, that's definitely a sign of extreme prematurity and then lastly look at the feet uh, look at the bottom of their feet specifically term infants have very fat cute feet with creases at the bottom and premature infants have very smooth shiny feet with no creases in your case, the baby came out, clearly had signs of life, needed some quick resuscitation. But in step number eight, we have to ask the question of, should I resuscitate this baby if the baby doesn't have signs of life? And this is why figuring out that gestational age is so important. Yeah, it was kind of scary. So she actually delivered with membranes intact. We didn't even have time to rupture her membranes. And so, you know, the baby came out kind of like a little alien <laughs> intact in this sack. And what we did was after she delivered the sack, we actually ruptured and I scooped this alien looking thing out of the sack and what I didn't think of at that point was you know should I actually resuscitate this baby or not and that sounds counterintuitive um, but there has been thoughts about this in the past you know the American Academy of Pediatrics and ACOG actually had a joint workshop in 2014 and they basically looked at you know should you actually resuscitate these babies and what parameters you know are we thinking of to determine whether or not you should actually resuscitate and so what they decided was at less than 22 weeks of gestation, they are not recommending resuscitation at all. These babies are way too young and they actually have a zero chance of survival. So what they do recommend is comfort care. Between 22 weeks and six days, they're recommending only resuscitating these babies if, they, if you think that they are potentially viable. After 23 weeks, um, resuscitation is recommended unless you think that they're not viable. 
they're actually using a 400 gram cutoff. And of course, that less than 22 weeks, less than 400 grams is when they have no signs of life. So if there's no signs of life and you know that they're less than 22 weeks, you may not choose to resuscitate that baby because of these guidelines. The problem, of course, in the emergency department is even with these rough guesstimates, we're going to be up against the wall. It's going to be really hard for us to know, is this 22 weeks? Is it 23 weeks? And I think most of us are going to err on the side of caution and start that resuscitation unless there's clear signs that we're well under that 22-week period. It's a very difficult call to make, and I think most of us would err on the side of trying because we just don't know how old that baby is or how long that gestation has been. That brings us into step number nine, which is if you decide to resuscitate, you wanna drive this with good neonatal resuscitation. And these algorithms are a little bit complicated. It's hard to discuss on a podcast. So instead, we're gonna drop the NALS algorithm in the show notes for everyone to refer to. And you can see that algorithm, how it plays out based on their respiratory rate, their heart rate, what you're expecting, and then what you're gonna supply. It is much different than the algorithm that we see for adults, as it should be. And so we'll drop that over in the show notes. But Christine, you picked out a couple of things that kind of stuck out in your mind that maybe you didn't remember from your NALS training because it's been a couple of years that you wanted to stress for the listeners. Yeah, it's one thing to learn about these algorithms and go over it, but another thing to actually have to use it in real life. And one of the, the biggest things that I think that I forgot was that you have to allow for permissive hypoxia because these neonates early after birth take a little bit of time to adjust to the world and hyperoxia can be just as bad for these kids. Um, so remember to allow for permissive hypoxia. At about one minute, a normal pulse ox for a, a neonate is 60 to 65%. At two minutes, they go from 65 to 70% and up to three minutes, they're still at 70 to 75%. So lower than you think they should be. There's some other things there that you should always remember. It's always good parts of care. So remember to check an AccuCheck. A lot of these kids are going to be low on their dextrose and you're going to need to supply that. Consider naloxone. That's something that depending on the situation might be really helpful. And then if you need access, which for any of these medications you're going to be giving, you probably will. The umbilical line is probably the first thing to go for. And again, we'll drop a link to how to do an umbilical vein catheterization in the show notes. Not something that we do very often. So again, it's something good to remember. But I'll tell you, it's actually fairly easy to do. It just needs that little hump of getting over because it's not something that you do very frequently. And Christine, that brings us to step number 10. This is kind of the finish line. This is the one that we have to get to and, and we're hoping to get to as quickly as possible, which is transferring the patient to the receiving center. Absolutely. These kids uh, need definitive care. These kids need a NICU team to help them. They have a very long road ahead of them, but you know the, the hard work that you and your team put in um, with the resources that you had gave them that chance. And so you should be proud of that. All right, Christine, we always like to wrap up these podcasts with some take-home points. What do you want to leave the listeners with? These situations are high stakes, high stress. Just talking about this again on this podcast is giving me palpitations, just thinking about it. Um, but, you know, you have the equipment that you need, and if you don't, you make do. Um, you have the knowledge in the back of your brain stored somewhere. And remember plastic wrap because it's more than just a preservative for your food. It could definitely help out this neonate. In terms of resuscitation, if you do decide to resuscitate, um, remember to allow for permissive hypoxia, look at the heart rate, assess the tone, and their respiratory rate. All right, that's all for the Rebel Core Content Podcast this week. We'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. If you want to check out more from the Rebel EM team, hop on over to the site at rebelem.com for all of our posts. 
Also, the Rebellion and EM Conference is back again in San Antonio from June 5th to the 7th. We have a fantastic lineup with Dr. Jillian Schmitz giving the keynote, talks from Tarlin Hedayati, David Carr, Hillary Fairbrother, Jamie Hope, Rob Bryant, Andy Little, Haney Malamut, Zaf Kassim, Ashley Liebig, George Willis, Scott Wieters, Misaho Morrison, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many faculty that'll be there, and we hope to see you there too. Go to rebellionem.com to check out more on the conference, and we'll see you in a couple months.